You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you would, turn me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 and find verse 15. We're going to be in verses 15, 16, and 17. won't say all that there is to say about these verses this week, but we'll pick back up in it uh, next week. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, I'll introduce myself. If you are new uh, or a guest with us, my name is Jamin uh, Roller, and I am one of the pastors here, the lead pastor of teaching here at Citizens Church. And so we hadn't said this in a few weeks, uh, but it will probably be worth saying that uh, this church uh, was once a campus of the Village Church. And so what I know to be true is that many are still uh, even coming in uh, with that story in mind. And if you're wondering, uh, why does the church have a different name uh, and who are you? There's a great story behind that, and we would love to, to share that with you. It's better had in person. So find someone here that looks like they've been here for a while, or uh, I'd love to, to share that story with you after uh, service. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. We'll get there in just a second. Uh, Most of my uh, childhood, my family fell uh, on the lower end of middle class. So low middle class. My mom didn't work. Uh, Dad didn't make a whole lot of money. Uh, They had four kids. My, about four years after I was born, uh, my little brother was born. He was born with a birth defect called spina bifida. Uh, and so he's been paralyzed from the waist down his entire life. And so uh, I know many in the room know this, but to have a, a child with special needs is a lot of things. And one of the things it is, is it's really expensive. And so my, my, it was a single income home, uh, ministry family, special needs family, just wasn't a whole lot of, of money going around. Now, uh, we, what we lacked in things and stuff, we had an abundance of love from Jesus for us and for one another, and so that's not the point. Uh, what it meant growing up in that home is it impacted how we ate as a family, meaning uh, my mom, uh, when she would cook, uh, she would cook uh, meals that she could make cheap that would last a long time, right? So the name of the game was a cheap, quick meal that could produce lots of leftovers. So that meant a lot of hamburger helper is what we ate growing up. That, uh, that meant a lot of uh, frozen food, a lot of Stouffer's lasagna, which whether you're rich or poor, that's always a good decision, right? So, uh, and then what it meant too is, is that you kind of learned to fend for yourself as, as a kid and that if mom wasn't cooking, you just needed to, to make something quick. Well, there was only cheap options. So I can remember one of the things that I, I began to eat early on uh, were nachos. And what I meant by that is I would take a, a, a plate and I would put chips on that plate. I would take a handful of shredded cheese. I would sprinkle it on those chips. I would put it in the microwave for 30 seconds and what was just chips and cheese in that 30 seconds became this miracle food. It was incredible, like heaven on earth. It would come out, and, and, and I know you know what I'm talking about, and so you can be more responsive than that. But, um, <laughs> and so we, I, would, I would eat those, and then as I maybe got older, junior high, I kind of started getting odd jobs, and, and what I would do with that money is I would go and just buy fast food. And so here's the thing. Throughout my childhood, uh, the way we were, we were raised, I uh, was conditioned to crave cheap food fast food, uh, 30-second microwave nacho kind of food. When I was uh, 15, a guy in our church, uh, the church we were at at the time, took our family on a vacation down to Austin. 
this man was, uh, he's like an adopted grandfather, and we loved him. He was so kind and generous. Uh, his dad, or maybe his granddad, bought some land in East Texas, and on that land, they discovered a ton of oil. So he was doing okay. He had a lot of resources, and he was very generous with those resources. And so on spring break, when I was 15, he took our family down to Austin just to spoil our family. That's what he wanted to do. He took us shopping, and we went to movies and all these kinds of things. And every night, he had booked reservations at these super fancy fine dining places. So we were there three nights and every single night. So we went to a place called Trulux, went to a place called Fleming's. Last night was a place called Ruth's Chris. And so I had never been anywhere like that, never been to a place like that. And so we would go to, we went to this very first time and I was just blown away. Like at that point, a nice dinner for our family was Applebee's, right? And you don't even think about getting dessert unless it's your birthday. And so not, nothing against Applebee's if for some reason it means a lot to you, that was just our family, right? <laughs> So we sat down the first night, and the waiter brought out this menu, but not just the menu. The waiter brings out this platter full of meats, and it's all these, kinds of, all these different kinds of meats and different kinds of cuts, and he's explaining, and I just had no idea what I was getting into. So I leaned over my dad, and I was like, hey, what should I get? And he points to this New York strip that's the size of my face, and he's like, you should get that. And so I ordered it. And it's just beautiful, right? Everyone's got a collared shirt on and every, or wearing a dress and there's this tablecloth and everyone's dressed up and it's like dimmed lighting and everything's just, the presentation's just beautiful and they bring out appetizers and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, there's a feast that's coming that's unlike anything I've ever had. There is a meal that's coming that's unlike anything I've ever tasted. So appetizers are being brought out and I'm just waiting and all of a sudden this plate is put in front of me and it's just presented so beautifully and I can tell it's just quality food and we pray and I grab my fork and in that moment before eating, I thought I would rather have fast food. I did, I thought I kinda would rather just have a plate of nachos. And what was interesting, and I remember it distinctly, and why I can communicate it is because I remember it so distinctly. I remember thinking in my mind that there's something wrong with me because of that. Like there is food in front of me that is objectively, objectively better than the thing that I have been eating. It is objectively finer and richer than anything that I've ever had before. And yet, what I know to be true and what I'm craving in the moment is different. There is a gap between uh, what, I, uh, what I, am, I am believing and what I know and what I'm experiencing. Like, in other words, I was offered a feast, and yet what I craved in that moment was what was cheap. Have you ever had any experience like that? Have you ever had like this experience where there is a gap between what you believe and what you want? A gap between what you know, maybe, and what you crave. This passage that we're in, 15, 16, 17, what will be in next Sunday, is one that is incredibly rich, incredibly rich. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. By him all things are made, both visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things created through him and for him. He's before all things and all things hold together. So just in that, there's so many beautiful realities about God. This passage is uh, Christology and it's Trinitarian theology and it's uh, Imago Dei and it tells us how to understand creation and beginnings and ends. And some of that maybe jumps off the page for you. Some of it doesn't. There's something else that's true about this passage that does not jump off the page because it's not stated, but it is known. And it's this, this passage is a song. It's a hymn, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20 is a song that the early church 
would sing. In fact, there's a Roman author named Pliny who wrote a few years after uh, Jesus lived that Christians, he observed Christians, he's a historian, he would say Christians would gather early in the morning and sing, this is a quote, and sing of Christ a song that he was God. And some think it was this song that they were singing. And so maybe Paul wrote this song or maybe this song already existed, but what Paul does is what he says here about Jesus, he says in song. And here's what I want to acknowledge about that, that he is appealing. He is uh, speaking in a way that is both intellectual and poetic. He is uh, offering theology and art. So if he's speaking intellectually and poetic, if he's speaking to the intellect through the art, what we know is that he is going after, that God through him is going after both the mind and the heart. Intellect and art is, a, is, is, is going after both our mind and our heart. And here's why. So that when it comes to Jesus, there would be no gaps between what we know and what we crave. If we can go back a few weeks, do you remember what we said is happening in this city? The gospel goes into this city, and it's going into a city where there is a ton of different religious beliefs, uh, and, then, and then see the gospel over this city is that there already is a, a gospel, and it's King Caesar, and he's treated as if he's divine. And so the pressure on the church is not to uh, forget Jesus or to stop worshiping him, but to really just downplay his significance. You don't have to deny him, but you do. If you're going to make it in this world, uh, you can't care a whole lot about him. And so Paul is writing to speak into that. Week one, if you remember all that, he thanks God for what's true about them. Last week, uh, he, he tells them how he's praying for them and what he's praying for them. And then this week, he launches into this barrage of Christological truths, and he does that by placing here a song. Here, here's what, what that would have meant for this church when they received this letter. And I think this will maybe help us, if we know the story, this will maybe help us understand how we are to respond to this passage. When letters are sent in the first century, they are not just delivered. It's not like I would bring it to you and then you would open it and read it because a lot of people who needed to hear what the letter said couldn't read. And so the letter was not just delivered, it was uh, delivered and then read by the deliverer, meaning, Uh, The person that was uh, carrying the letter was a professional. They were hired to take the letter and then to deliver the letter out loud because it's 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 an oral culture, meaning they would read it, but not just read it, they would perform it is a good way to think about it. So um, there was this emphasis as they're reading it on inflection and on emotion. They would perform the heart of the letter. And so Paul tells us in chapter four, the person that he sent to read the letter is a Christian, actually. So a professional Christian letter performer named Tychicus. And so if you would go into the living room with me, remember we're in this house, our pastor has left, this guy comes back bringing a letter and he stands in the middle of the living room and he's reading about Paul and he's reading about what he's grateful for in the prayer and then when he gets to this part in the letter, he is at at the very least reciting this poem with emotion and it's engaging and he gets to, he is the image of the invisible God and his talking has turned into singing. 
Uh, his reading has turned, he breaks out in song, not like Disney movie breakout in song, like church service breakout in song. His reading turns into worship. And if that's true, and he's singing, I'm not going to do it, he's singing, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and you're in that room listening to him sing, you're not just being invited to know what he knows, you're being invited to love what he loves, being invited in that moment into worship. That's the effect that corporate singing has. Like, when a group of people start singing together and you're in that group of people, you are not just confronted with a question of belief, you're confronted with a question of love. Do you, do you care about these things like these people care about these things? So we can make the point like this. It's college football season and uh, there's stadiums filled with people, right? And they are all uh, rooting, right, for their team or whatever. Uh, And one of the moments where you kind of see their love for their team most on display is during the fight song, when the school's song plays. And what you see is you see this stadium filled with people who are singing this song together, right? And that's the moment where uh, it's not just, oh, wow, they go to that school. When you watch them sing at the top of their lungs with all the emotion, it's like, it's not just we go here, it's we love this place, right? So their arms are linked and they're singing and they're swaying back and forth. And you're like, okay, man, they love that place probably a little bit more than they should love that place, right? And so, no, we to that. Paul knows that this church has issues. Follow me here. Paul knows that this church has issues. He knows the pressure on them to pull back in his solution. Gosh, this is so beautiful. His solution is not to defend Jesus or even to plead with this church, but he reaches deep into his pockets and offers the truth about who Jesus is, who Jesus has always been, wraps it in a song and says, worship him. Like, worship the one who alone is worthy. So he is not just fighting against wrong thinking. There's a guy in the middle of the living room singing that Jesus is the image of the invisible God by him, through him, for him, all things are made. Singing about Jesus, not simply that we know the right things, but that there be no gaps when it comes to Jesus between what we know and what we desire. That there be no gaps between what we know and what we crave. Listen, do you ever feel those kinds of gaps? Are you ever sitting at the table and the feast comes out and you're confronted with the fact that maybe you crave something that's lesser than what's in front of you? I do. Like, Christian, you ever feel the gap between the God you know and the things you feel so pulled to actually worship? Do you ever feel the gap between what you should desire and what you actually desire? Here's my prayer that as we walk through this song, that God in his mercy would expose in our lives our cheap cravings, that he would give us the, uh, the tools we need both in our head and in our heart to war against those, and that he would call us again back to the feast. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You take that first part first. He's the image of the invisible God. That short phrase is just loaded with meaning. And it means, it means several things. The first thing that we'll see is that it means that Jesus, that in Jesus we see God. 
in Jesus we see God most clearly. This is so important, especially with where we are now. We talked about this a bit last week, but the word God is used to describe so many different things, right? It's used by people in so many different ways that just saying the name God from two different people, we cannot assume that we're talking about the same being, right? Uh, Dads, if your uh, daughter calls home from college and says, I met a guy, and don't worry, he believes in God, that's just not quite enough, right? You have follow-up questions for what that means and what he's like, right? And so, because some people, if you're just paying attention to the way God is talked about, or maybe even the way, the the myriad of things we think about when we think about God, uh, some people go on to describe a being that is cold and angry and distant and wants nothing to do with us or at least nothing to do with me, or at least nothing to do with me on my really bad, messy days. Is that God? Or some people go on to describe, when they talk about God, a being that is passive and compliant and maybe kind of a pushover, like he's always okay with all that I desire and never asks anything of me. Is that God? Is that who he is? Or some just describe a a, a being that is more like force, like something of God is in everyone and everything, but is not personal. So who is God and what is God? With the myriad of definitions, right, which one is right? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus defines who God is. Uh, Jesus is the unchanging definition of who God is and what God is like. He makes what's invisible, what Paul's saying, he makes what's invisible visible. He takes, uh, he becomes the lens through which what is unseen is now made known. And that's really good news. That's really good news. If if you uh, have studied or considered the life of Jesus at all. If that's what God is like, that's really good news. Like, let's say we work together and we're getting a new boss and and I have met her, uh, but you have not met her. And you're asking me, okay, what is she like? And instead of telling you what she's like, I just tell you, I compare her to someone. I'm like, you know, she's kind of like Meryl Streep's character from Devil Wears Prada, right? That's really bad news, but that's a lens through which you know kind of what's coming. Or if I tell you, you say what she's like, and I'm like, you know what, she's kind of like Mother Teresa, you know, like kind and strong. In that moment, instead of just giving you like a list of descriptions, I've given you a person that maybe both of us know, and through that person, you know what to expect and you know what to understand. What is God like? Who is God? How does he uh, interact with people? Jesus, Jesus. God is, like I think for many of us, Um, there's maybe an unspoken fear or belief that Jesus represents some of the heart of God or that Jesus represents some of what God is like. But there are these other things that we have to watch out for that may be like Jesus is the best of, of who God is, but there are these hidden things about God that we have to be careful. Or maybe if I could put it in a way that's colloquial, uh, Jesus is God like on God's best day when God's having a good day. I was talking to uh, JT English this week. He's uh, a pastor over at the village, and I was talking to him about this passage. He has a PhD in Trinitarian theology, and so I wanted to bounce some thoughts off of him. And we were talking about this idea of Jesus being the image of God, and, and he said that when he teaches on this in the training program that he has, one of the things he says is this. I thought it was so helpful. If you have a conception of who God is that is different than who Jesus is, You do not have a God to be worshipped. You have an idol to be killed. Let's tease that out a bit. Let's tease it out a bit. Uh, Okay, I've not prayed in a while. 
And uh, I'd, I'd like to try to start praying again. And, and every time I try, I get this sense that God doesn't have time for me or that God is mad at me, that God's kind of scoffing, that after all this time, I've kind of mustered up the spirituality to try and talk to him again. But in reality, he's just kind of annoyed by it. And is that God? Is that who God is? Well, we have to view that through the lens of Jesus. What's Jesus like? He always always had time for his disciples, always had time to talk to them, to interact with them. In fact, uh, in Matthew chapter, or in John chapter five, Jesus has retreated to mourn the loss of his cousin, and he wants to be alone, and a crowd of disciples come up to talk to him, and he allows his mourning to be interrupted so he can listen to them, so that he can talk with them, so he can spend time with them. God, hear me, what's God like? He wants to hear from you. He wants to hear from you. Whether it's been a while or whether it's been since this morning, he's always eager to listen and to talk. That's who Jesus is. That's who God is. Man, I don't know a lot, and I'm not the most mature in the room, and I cannot get as close to God as others, and I just feel kind of really young in all of this. And, and is God like that? Is God the kind of, of God that is judging us in our immaturity or judging us in our youth? Well, if you think about Jesus in Matthew 19, he shuts down one of his own sermons so that who can come to him? The children so that the children could come to and all of their immaturity and all of their messiness and all of their youngness, he shuts down the sermon to make time for them. And if that's who Jesus is, then that's who God is. Man, I'm just so needy and I am such a mess and the circumstances of my life are just kind of, uh, just kind of uh, in pieces right now and God just doesn't have time for my needs. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus is on his way to heal a girl who's on her deathbed and he stops because somebody tugged on his jacket and he turns around and it's this widow who was uninvited and who was sick and who was needy and who was unwelcomed and Jesus not only heals her, but he makes time to talk to her and to encourage her. What's God like? He's eager to meet needs. If we see God through the lens of Jesus, we know that we can approach him with confidence. What need do we have that he doesn't care about? Or maybe you say, and I'm married, uh, but there's this person at work that I'm starting to develop feelings for. And what should I do? And doesn't God want me to be happy? <laughs> have the conversation with Jesus. What does he say? He says, I want you to live a full, abundant, joy-filled life, and your heart will lie to you about what that looks like. Your heart will lie to you about what that looks like. And, and do not walk, my friend, down that road. It's pain and it's empty promises. He says in Luke chapter 9, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That path to joy is not self-indulgence, but self-denial. And if Jesus reveals God, and if Jesus is who God is, God will never tell you that you can find happiness in what Jesus has already said will ruin your life. They're not gonna disagree with one another. Or maybe it's, gosh, I feel like I've been obedient, and in being obedient, there just hasn't been a whole lot of material blessing, and I feel like God's not keeping up his end of the bargain. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven. Those things don't rust. God will bless your obedience, not by giving you more stuff, but by giving you more of himself. That's what Jesus says. God, do you care about my anxiety? Do you care about how overwhelmed I feel? 
Uh, you've either neglected me or you're just annoyed by all that I have. Have that conversation with Jesus. In Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light for I am gentle and lowly in heart. God is gentle and lowly in heart. That's who Jesus is. That's who God is. God lifts heavy burdens and replaces them with light ones. Man, I'm in this cycle of sin and shame, and I just keep making promises that I keep breaking, and I am exposed, and I know that Jesus died for me, but God, I feel like maybe you're still a bit angry with me and want nothing to do with me, and you are just tired of the same tired confession. I thought I'd be done with this by now, so surely you had bigger expectations that I would be done with this by now. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Jesus puts God's heart for you on display. On the cross, he says, it is finished. And what that doesn't mean is that Jesus has love for you and God has anger for you and somehow Jesus' love won out on your behalf. No, God, including Jesus, angry at sin. God, including Jesus, full of wrath towards sinners, sends the Son to die in our place because God, including Jesus, is filled with triumphant love for you, friend. And the wrath of God is perfectly absorbed in his own death that your tired confession can be offered again to God and again be met with love. He's not rolling his eyes. He's opening his arms That's who Jesus is. And we see God through the lens of how we see Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. That kind of God is worth singing about. That kind of God, that is the feast to sit down before and to have all of our cheap cravings exposed that our hearts could orient around the one who actually satisfies. We'll keep going. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. It means that in Jesus we see who God is, and it means that in Jesus we see who we were meant to be, both who we were meant to reflect and who we were meant to worship and adore. So image is a loaded word in the Bible. In the Bible, uh, the word here, the Greek word uh, is literally icon, which is where we get our word icon. It's spelled differently, uh, but it, it, uh, it means statue, right? It's, it's an image. And the word, it goes all the way back to Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. What does that mean? Uh, in 2016, the airport in Madeira, Portugal, was renamed Madeira International Airport Cristiano Ronaldo after the soccer player. Uh, Ronaldo is one of the best in the world from what I hear. I'm not a a huge soccer fan. I'm becoming a soccer fan. Uh, I was raised as a football fan, specifically raised as a Cowboys fan, but not like the annoying kind. I'm more of the realistic kind, which means I believe they'll win the Super Bowl this year. I just think it's going to happen. Um... (laughs) But uh, from what I understand, Cristiano Ronaldo is one of the best in the world, and he's from, he's from Portugal. He's from Madeira, Portugal. So they renamed the airport in honor of him, and they had a ceremony to, to mark the change. And part of that ceremony was that they hired a sculptor to uh, create a sculpture of Ronaldo, and they were going to unveil that statue 
as part of the ceremony. And so uh, they get through all of kind of the, the pageantry of it, and then all of a sudden the sculpture is unveiled, and after it's unveiled, all of the focus went on to the sculpture. And here's why. Because most of the world believed it was a really bad sculpture of Cristiano Ronaldo. Most of the world reacted and said, that does not look like him at all. And so after that point, all of the memes and all of the articles, like that became the focus. Now I have to say this, I do not fault the guy at all. He did a far better job than I would have been able to do. I'm not, I'm not artistic in that way. The other day, Addie asked me to draw a dog on a piece of paper. And so I drew a dog and I slid it back to her and she looked at it and then she just stared at me <laughs> with such disappointment. And it's like the longer she stared, she began to wonder, like, what, what else is dad really awful at, right? It was, it was encouraging. Um, but the guy makes this sculpture. And, and here's, if you know the story, which maybe some of you do, what's interesting about the story is that uh, people did not say, man, that really doesn't look like Ronaldo. There was a reaction of anger over it. There was a reaction of offense over it because they held in such high esteem the person that the statue was supposed to represent. Let me give you just one example. Sports Illustrated journalist wrote this about the sculptor. He managed to take the beautiful games, most beautiful player, and turn him into a monster. The statue was a reflection of something great and something beautiful, and so the expectation is that the statue itself be great and beautiful. Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What does it mean? Reflect God in the world. Be the living statue, the living icon, the living image that live beautiful lives that point to the beautiful God. How has humanity generally done at that? Sin in all of our lives has distorted that image. Sin in all of our lives, like the offense of sin is that while we were supposed to represent something great, something held in high esteem, something beautiful, we have misrepresented God in the world and made him even look like a monster at times in all of our lives. We need help. Who then can be the image that we were supposed to be? Follow me. Paul is saying something here that I don't know that I ever noticed before studying this week, and I'm just so captivated by it. He's the image of the invisible God, and who's he talking about? He's not yet talking about Jesus. What I mean by that is he says, firstborn over all creation, uh, by him all things are made. In other words, he is speaking about what was true about the Son. He's speaking about what was true about the second person of the Trinity before he took on flesh as Jesus. So before the incarnation, what was the Son doing? He was imaging the Father. For all of eternity, he was imaging before the world's made, before creation, humanity, sin, trees, mountains, iPhones, anything. There is God, there is Father, Son, Spirit, and the Son is eternally imaging the Father, eternally representing the Father. When God makes Adam and Eve and says, in our image, he is creating man and woman after the pattern relationally of the Son creating them after the pattern of the second person of the Trinity. Uh, man and woman will be my image bearers. The son is the template 
from which humanity was fashioned. What Adam and Eve and you and I were created to do and to be are those who represent and reflect and image God, which is nothing short of what the Son has been to the Father always, always. And what happens is that we, patterned after the eternal Son, because of sin, we are broken images, the unveil happens, and we are statues that look so unlike the real thing that it's a mockery. Instead of being just, we're cruel. Instead of being uh, compassionate, instead of being holy, instead of being beautiful, all the attention of the world, instead of being on what the image reflects, all the attention of the world is on the distortion that sin brings to our life and to all of our imaging. Who then can be the human that is the perfect reflection of the eternal son that we were meant to be? Who can bring clarity to the distortion? Who can be the image as beautiful as the God it reflects? The son can. It's who he is. So the, the son, the second person of the Trinity, takes on flesh, becomes human. Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, to do on earth that which he has been doing since before time began. The, I, the, the living statue that is just as beautiful as the God that he represents because he is God and because it's what he's always done. That's what Jesus does in his life. Do you, do you see God's kindness? Listen, how good and kind of God to send the son to become like us that we could see in human form, not a standard that we could never reach, but that we could see in human form what we were always meant to be and who we were always meant to be. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We see God in him. We see in him the picture of the life we were meant to live. What a feast. What a God. What a God so worthy of all of our wants and all of our cravings. He doesn't stop there. He calls Jesus the firstborn, and then he just goes on this Christological rant, firstborn of all creation, by him, through him, in him, all things are made. He's before all things, and in him, all things hold together. And what we have here is we have the why behind creation, the why behind all of our lives. When he calls Jesus firstborn, well, he calls the son the firstborn, rather, he is not talking about him being a created being. Firstborn, uh, like it's, it, the way it's used in Psalm 89 is a good example. Psalm 89, 27, uh, talking about David, it says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Jesus, the son, was not created. The father, son, spirit always has been, unbegotten. Uh, Jesus being the firstborn means that he is creation's highest priority. That creation exists because it pleased God that out of love the world would exist for Jesus. This is the why behind creation. Uh, writing to this church in Colossae, there were a lot uh, of ideas about where the world came from and what the gods were like. Some believe that the world was birthed out of conflict, that these uh, massive spiritual beings were in conflict with one another, and out of that conflict, the world came to existence. Some thought that we can't know, we don't know, maybe there isn't a reason, and so all we do is treat the world as if this is all that there is, and Paul says, nope. We have a better song to sing than that. We have a better story and a better why. It's not born out of conflict. It's not from what we don't know or can't know. It is born out of love. Before God is creator, God is a re eternally relational being. And God at his core,
core is love, and that love is extended and uh, shared among the persons of the Trinity. And it is out of that love that God creates because he shares that love with us. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he talks about uh, this as being a good infection, meaning the love of God is this contagious thing that you actually want. And I think we've experienced maybe bits of this. Have you ever, um, have you ever been a part of a friend group or maybe you've entered into a friend group that, that you are the newest one in that friend group and everyone else in that group has a lot of history together? And so maybe you go and you spend time and they've known each other for a while and you're around them and there's laughter and there's love and there's history and there's true friendship. And maybe you leave that dinner, you know, late into the night and you feel infected by the love that they shared. You, you knew that there was something right about what existed among them. Or maybe you go and you spend time with a family and you see mom and dad and kids and there is, there's a lot of help there and there's a lot of story there and there's a lot of enjoyment of one another and you leave that family and you're like, man, will they adopt me? Will they just adopt me into their family because I want to be a part of that family. That's God. God, he is that, that father-son spirit, genuine friendship that is true and pure and to be around it is to crave it. To be around it is to be infected by it with a good infection. And God made the world out of that love that he shared in himself. And he made the world out of that love to infect the world with that good infection that we might be invited into what we most long for. And what he says here is that we exist and been invited into that because it pleased the Father that the Son would create the world and in creating be the priority of creation by him, through him, and for him. It means this. It means that God shares the relational love that he has and to join in that relational love is first by acknowledging Jesus as the one who this is all about. Acknowledging Jesus as the priority behind all creation. All that we see points our hearts towards him. All of life directed towards him. So here's what we've said. Through Jesus we see God. And I know maybe the last 10 minutes of that was fairly dense. So here's what we said. In Jesus we see God. Through Jesus we see who we're meant to be. Both as those who reflect Jesus and as the ones who worship him. That's the song. That's the song. And there's more there, and we'll pick back up next week. But listen, that's what we believe. And so what I'd, what I'd like to do is if we just, in light of that, if we come to the table, and these are the truths that are presented, that this is who Jesus is, it's who God is, it's, it's, it's what we were meant to worship and what we were meant to reflect and, and meant to shape, not just how we think, but how we love and how we want and how we crave. Do you feel some gaps? I just said from Scripture that Jesus is creation's priority. Is he yours? Is he mine? Do we feel any gaps? And, and if there are gaps, like I know what I know, and then I know what I crave, and those things are different, let me take a stab at two reasons that might be true, and then we'll sing together. One of the reasons why there might be that gap is that I was made to be satisfied in Jesus. Stay with me. If you've missed everything else, don't miss this. I've been made to be satisfied in Jesus, who is eternal and secure, 
I have learned to stave off that longing with what is new and fleeting. The Son is eternal, always has been. He holds all things together. He's secure. I was made for Him. I have learned. I have conditioned my heart to find cheap, momentary satisfaction in what is new and what is fleeting. A new gadget, a new post, a new food, a new look, a whole new me, a new hobby, a new trip, a new friend, a new lover, a new binge, none of which lasts. And none of it lasts, at least in the effect of bringing that temporary settling to the soul. And so because it does not last, we feel insecure. If the thing I am looking to for satisfaction is temporary, I know it's only a matter of time before I'm searching again. If we go back to what we said when we were in John 15, a question that we asked, when your time is yours, when your time is yours, when you don't have to do anything, if it's five free minutes where you go with the time that is yours, is ultimately what you believe will satisfy the longing of your soul. And if it's not the eternal, secure, second person of the Trinity who made you for him, who you are also held by, you and I will be in this cycle of chasing new coping that is fleeting and be confused why we've been a Christian for a really long time and I still want the things I've always wanted. Stay at the feast. Friends, let's fight together to stay at the, you don't develop right hunger for the feast by leaving it every time you crave something else. Second, if I was made to image and reflect Jesus, my life is only going to feel uh, full and rich if he's the object of what I'm trying to become. Romans 8 says it this way, uh, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes, for who he foreknew, he predestined, why? To be conformed into the image of the Son. Jesus is the object, the picture of, of who we were meant to become. And so the question we have to ask is, is that who I am conceiving of, as who, of who I want to become in my life? Is he the one? Is, is he the uh, image that the image of my life is patterned after? And look, I think for many of us, if it's not Jesus, uh, for most, it's not something that's inherently evil. The thing I'm saying I want to become is not something that's inherently evil in and of itself. It's like no one would be like, yeah, you know, I'm just trying to reflect Satan. I just want to see how that goes for me for a while, right? It's not, it's not, it's more deceptive than that. For many of us, we are trying, and we've done work here for a long time. We are trying to reflect a version of ourselves that we hope to become someday. That's different. That's not the same as trying to conform to the image of the sun. It's we're trying to reflect a version of ourselves that we know we're not, but we hope one day that we are. So if it's me, I'm trying to reflect to the world of future Jamin, who I'm not yet, who I hope to be. In the future Jamin, in my conception of him, he's cleaner, he's godlier, He's more successful. He's less stressed. Uh, he isn't, he isn't uh, struggling with like low to moderate anxiety. He isn't worried about our church. And if we'll continue to move forward unified, he's more patient with his kids. He's less frazzled by conflict. He's less afraid. And it's not who I am. It's who I uh, hope to be someday. And so in the present, here's where we get uh, so caught and confused. In the present, I will try to be him in the way that you encounter him. I will try to respond in ways that I think that he would 
would respond and so that I can try to at least reflect to you that that's who I am, even though that's not who I am. And when, <laughs> and when I try to reflect him hope that I can fake it enough to cover the discrepancy between who he is and who I actually am, if it's you trying to reflect this version that has it all together, that never lets any of the cracks show, that never fails, that is not weak. Even now, I can't be honest sitting in this sermon, can't be honest about the gaps I'm discovering because I'm trying to reflect a better me. And so you are not that person that you're trying to reflect. You're not that person, but you hope you can fake it enough to cover in front of somebody else the discrepancy between who you want to be and who you actually are. And then Jesus then... Jesus is not the object of my life, the object of my reflection. He is someone who serves and helps me as I image the future me who doesn't actually exist. And so when I see the feast, of course I don't crave it because there is a gap between what I know and what I crave because I'm not trying to become like Jesus. I am using Jesus to serve my ambitions, which makes him a servant of my dreams, not an object of my worship. You and I were not made to be a reflection of the version of us that we're no longer ashamed of. You and I were not made to be a reflection of the you that exists only in some fictitious future. You were made to be a reflection of Jesus who is present now, who loves you now, is real now, can change you now. And the discrepancy between who you are and who he is is not something that you and I have to cover by being fake. It's something that is covered by the blood of Jesus, which frees us to be honest. God, if we could just believe this and live out of this and just come to this table to lay our cheap cravings at the feet of the eternal son who rules over all things and loves and shows us who God is and who we were meant to be. And you know what's so encouraging about songs? They were never written to just be sung once. Songs are given and meant to be sung over and over and over again, and we are given this song by God as a gift that is meant to play in our hearts on repeat, so that in repeating it, as it appeals to both the intellect and the art, as it appeals to both the mind and the heart, the cravings would change if we sing it with honesty. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things are made, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your compassion towards us, your kindness towards us. I confess, I confess, not as a pastor, I confess not as even a, a, a husband or a father or a friend. I confess as your son, holy God, that there's a gap between what I know and what I crave. And I just confess and acknowledge together that the only way to become someone who loves and worships and reflects you is by seeing you as that which is most lovable, that which is most worthy of worship. Would you make us that people this morning, God? 
Would you make us that people as we're on this journey together? We love you. Amen.